We are continuing this morning in our series for Lent, leading up to Easter as we've been looking at the I Am sayings of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Just a bit by way of introduction, there are of the classic sort of I Am sayings that we think of when we read the Gospel of John, there are seven. Seven in this particular form in which Jesus says, I am, and then he gives an explicit uh, predicate. And many of those we've seen so far in our series, I am the light of the world, I am the true vine, I'm the good shepherd, and on and on. There are seven of those. And what we notice about those is the way that Jesus is profoundly and explicitly pointing to himself as the one who can meet our spiritual needs. He's the fulfillment of Judaism. And the one that the Old Testament was pointing forward to. And so the pattern that we notice in these is Jesus is taking a very simple physical concept and he's making it into a profound spiritual concept. And then he's saying that that spiritual need that you feel is only met in him. As much as, for example, as much as you need light to see that much and infinitely times more, Jesus is saying, you need light to see spiritually, and I am the light. Right? I'm not just pointing to the light. I'm not a messenger about the light. I'm, just, I'm not just shedding some light on the subject. I'm the light. I'm the light, Jesus is saying. And the same, of course, with the other images. I'm the bread. I'm the shepherd. And the rest of them. Jesus is directing spiritual longings to himself. And promising that those who seek what they need in him will find what they're seeking. So that's sort of an introduction to us on the way that these sayings are functioning in John's gospel. They're pointing to deep Christological truths. Thus, of course, the religious leaders are deeply offended by the claims that Jesus is making. Because they recognize that he's claiming to be that which only God is for his people. Jesus is claiming to be that which only God is for his people. As I mentioned, there are seven of these that sort of fit this classic pattern. But as uh, Pastor Steve was was planning out the sermons um, leading up to Easter, we had more than seven Sundays. So we're going a bit beyond the classic ones because interestingly in John's Gospel, there are a number of other I am sayings. They follow a couple of different patterns. But they're there, and, uh, and we'll explore a couple of, of those today. To the woman at the well, for instance, Jesus says, I am, uh, I who speak to you am he. Right? When she was talking, asking about the Messiah. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when the people come to arrest him, they say, are you Jesus? And Jesus says, I am. And the guards fall down because of the the force of his words, because Jesus is saying, I am. Last week, we saw, as Pastor Steve led and and preached, we saw that before Abraham was born, I am. So it fits a different pattern, but it's the same idea. Jesus is pointing to himself. Jesus is saying something deeply important about who he is, about his nature, his identity. This morning we're getting kind of a double bonus. We're getting two, or actually really three, different I am sayings in our passage. It's from John 8. If you would turn with me there, it's on page 757 in the Pew Bibles. There's a sermon outline on pages 8 and 9 in your bulletin as well. We've been uh, in John 8 already, 
in John 8, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. At the end of John 8, Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. So we're kind of in the middle of, of where we've already been. But read with me there, uh, John 8, starting in verse 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable. And what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Please pray with me. Lord, we do need your help. You are Jesus the Word made flesh and incarnated. You are the one who is our teacher. Holy Spirit, you are our teacher, the one who reminds us of the truths that have come to us in this word. We pray now for your help, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we look at this passage together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we've already been in John 8 a bit for our series. I want to, again, sort of set the context for us because I think it's important uh, as we see our passage in light of the whole. The setting here is about six months prior to the cross. The tension with the, Jew- with the religious leaders of Jesus' day has reached the point that the ordinary people in Jerusalem know that the religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus that they want to arrest him, that they want to kill him. And so part of the dialogue is they're surprised that he's teaching openly, knowing that the religious leaders want to get rid of him. They, they, for their part, the leaders, have accused Jesus of being demon-possessed, of being a Samaritan, and all of these other sort of blasphemous things. Our passage is in the middle of this ongoing dialogue between Jesus and these religious leaders and the ordinary people of Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, In chapter 7, verse 10, it really gives us the setting. Jesus goes up to the Feast of Tabernacles. uh, That's one of the three Old Testament pilgrimage feasts where everyone was to go to Jerusalem and worship there together. Jesus began to teach there in the middle of the feast, according to verse 7, I mean, chapter 7, verse 14. This is a seven or eight day kind of feast. It was a long festival. The last day of the feast begins in 737 as Jesus is teaching. And it's interesting, as you read John's gospel, there isn't really a break until chapter 10, verse 21. And I think it's likely that from 737 until 1021, this is all one day, actually, in the ministry in the life of Jesus. This assumes, of course, that the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery isn't 
actually part of the original text of John or actually belongs in a different place, which is a whole other issue. But um, as we consider this passage, we should see that this is, this is a whole unit that's actually probably one day in the ministry of Jesus. So on that day, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus has this lengthy debate with the religious leaders and the people. They pick up rocks to stone him. He gets away. As he's passing by, he sees a man born blind. He heals him. The man born blind goes and and, uh, testifies to that. Um, Jesus restores him. The man worships him. Jesus teaches about being the, the door of the sheep and the good shepherd. All of that happens, I think, in one day. And these questions that have been swirling about Jesus continue all through this whole day. Who is he? What authority does he have? Why is he doing and claiming these things? Are his claims valid? Who is his father that he keeps referring to? Where is he going? These, these questions will, will cycle around and pick up again and again as we go through the story. And then we come here in this passage to one of those questions right as it begins, as, begin, as Jesus begins to talk about his destiny, about where he's going, and we'll pick it up there in, in 21. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. In chapter 7, we saw in some of this discussion about this same question of where is Jesus going, of Jesus saying he's going to go away and people asking, where are you going? That question, of course, came up earlier. The people of Jerusalem spoke confidently that they knew where Jesus was from, they knew where he was going, and thus he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. It's part of the story in the previous chapter. And the irony, of course, is that they're showing their ignorance. Jesus isn't of this world. Jesus isn't really from Nazareth. He isn't really from Bethlehem. They aren't just a little wrong in what they think they know about Jesus. They're not just in the wrong zip code, right? They're on the wrong planet. They're on the wrong plane of existence. Jesus was there before the creation of anything. He is from, he's not from below. He's from above. There of this world. Jesus says, I am not of this world. The very universe was made through his agency. He's the eternally pre-existent son of God. The overflow of the love and relationship and goodness of the Trinity resulted in the creation as God shared his bounty and made it physical. At the fullness of time, at a specific time in history, God sent his son, yes, to be incarnated, to take on flesh, but the son has always been fully and completely human, yes, but his origin was not of this created world. And so the questions about where Jesus is coming from and where he's going have to find their answer here. He's not of this world. 
The people cannot judge Jesus according to the flesh, according to some human standards as they do in chapter 8, verse 15, as they've done. According to that kind of human judgment, Jesus is not impressive. It doesn't fit with the world's standards. A number of us were at the PCA Mercy Ministries conference this uh, past weekend. We heard a compelling account in one of the talks from the, it was, it was a wonderful sermon, from the entirety of Scripture, describing how Jesus became poor, how Jesus left riches, and how he became poor, and how his ministry was supported by the gifts of others, and how he was always eating in other people's homes, because he didn't have a home. He didn't have a bank account. He didn't have savings. He didn't have an inheritance to give to anyone else. He had no possessions except for the clothes on his body. According to the world, Jesus was not impressive in his person. He made himself poor. 2 Corinthians 8-9 tells us for our sake that through his poverty we would become rich. He's not impressive in that sense because he's not of this world. And the questions continue to swirl because they can't really grasp this. John 17, of course, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus repeats this teaching. In verse 13, he says to his father as he's praying, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Jesus isn't of the world, and here in this passage we learn by extension... His disciples aren't of the world anymore either. Our citizenship has changed, as Paul puts it in Philippians 3.20. Citizens of a different realm. And as Jesus is preparing to leave this world, as Jesus is preparing to go back to his Father, his disciples can't immediately follow, but they will. All of his disciples will follow in that path because we are not of this world anymore either, according to this. And that, of course, is a hard thing for us. There's a lot that we could talk about, about the living in the tension of being in the world and not of it, and what that looks like. And I'm not going to unpack that this morning. We're going to continue on in our text, get to, getting to a couple more of these I am sayings. In our next section, we find two of them. But these don't sort of fill in the blank. So verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. And then verse 28, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. If you're using a pew Bible, there's something a little tricky about these statements, about how we need to understand them. If you're using a pew Bible, you notice that there are these little brackets under there 
where they add in the words, the one I claim to be, after Jesus says, I am. Other English translations add the word he. So it says, if you do not believe that I am he. Others are like the original Greek text, and they leave out anything. And thus it reads, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The question is, I am what? Is Jesus leaving this blank? It's, it's, it's difficult because it's an ambiguous phrase in the Greek. And you could add he, or you could not add he, or you could add a referent, or you couldn't, based just on how you translate it, based on the way that they use it. I think this ambiguity actually works for us here. That we understand the full implications of what Jesus is teaching. If we supply the referent, that is if we, uh, which is again a legitimate option in our translations. I'm not saying that the NIV is wrong. Uh, it's, It's adding something that's not in the Greek, but that sometimes happens because it's going from one language to another language. Jesus is saying, so if we add that, it's Jesus is saying that I am he. That I am the one that I claim to be. And so what is Jesus claiming to be? Who is the he that he says that he is? Well, he's identifying himself as the one they've been waiting for. If you do not believe that I am the Messiah, we can add there. The Christ, God's anointed one, the promised one. The one who is the hope of God's people, the redeemer who has come. And on and on. The person they were waiting for. The Jewish people of Jesus' day were waiting for this one. And so that's clearly part of what's going on here, right? Jesus is claiming that he's that one. He's the one they've been waiting for. He's the Messiah. And yet, on the other hand, if we don't supply this referent, if we don't add a little pronoun there, we can also legitimately translate this phrase by leaving it off. It's the absolute use of I am, like in chapter 8, verse 58. In this case, there's another layer of proof that Jesus is divine. The use of I am without any qualifier, of course, harkens us back to Exodus 3, in the burning bush, when God reveals his name to Moses. I am who I am. I'm Yahweh, the personal name of God that God gives, his covenant name. In Scripture also, particularly in the servant song section of Isaiah, between Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 55, there are a number of these places where God says, I am, without a, without a qualifier. It's as a statement of his preexistence, as a statement of his reality. And so if we understand Jesus and we, if, we, if we understand what he's saying that way, then the people would have heard echoes of God's covenant name, his unique covenant name on the lips of Jesus. Another powerful proof that Jesus is claiming to be divine, that he's claiming to be equal with God the Father, that he's saying, I'm the same, I'm, I'm Yahweh too. I'm the same. I rescued you. I was there when we were, when God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit were working together to rescue you out of Egypt and out of slavery. Jesus is, do you see see how this works? So I think we're on solid ground to say we don't even have to pick between the two options. We can see that this ambiguity, as John often does in his gospel, 
He speaks ambiguously so that we would sort of see both sides of it. That this ambiguity serves to paint the full picture. That this Jesus is the Messiah. I am he. I'm the one. And that Jesus is God in the flesh. I am taking up God's covenant name. I'm applying it to myself. And so we don't have to choose between the two. We see in both what Jesus is claiming. We see layers of his self-identification, of the deep truths that we believe about the second person of the Trinity. Well, that's a lot of words and a little bit of grammar. How, do, how is Jesus making these particular claims in this passage? There are two aspects that I want us to look at, which really kind of bring us to our application, the implications of the passage for us today. First, again, verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. You will indeed die in your sins. The people are confused. They ask again, who are you? We don't really understand, even though we've been over the same ground over and over again over the last two chapters. And certainly it isn't always uh, crystal clear what Jesus is saying, partly because he has to be somewhat ambiguous, or they would stone him right then and there. And we can understand their confusion to a degree, but Jesus is making something abundantly clear. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the divine Messiah, the God-man, then you will indeed die in your sins. Most of the other I am sayings have this sort of positive outlook, right? You need light. You need bread. You need life. You need resurrection. But this one comes with this frightening kind of threat. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus says that your fears of death, the guilt of your sin, the sense of alienation from God that we once felt or that we still feel, that all of that is completely real and it will doom you unless you believe that Jesus is who he said he was. It's the simple and sort of scary part of the gospel message right here. Without Jesus, we're dead in our sins. And we have no hope in this world. However many times we've heard it, we might need to hear it again. Sin is real. Sin clings to us. Sin flows out of us. Sin ruins us. Sin dooms us. And this message is for all of us. Covenant children, you who grew up knowing the privileges of being in this community, I hope that you know that it is a privilege for you being in this community, in the body of Christ. With that privilege comes responsibility. You, covenant children, have a choice to make. Your faith can't depend on the faith of this body or the faith of your parents or the faith of your Sunday school teachers. Your faith that kind of childlike faith that teaches all of us adults must rest on Jesus because there's no other solution for your sin. So I appeal to you, place your faith in him. Believe he's the only one who can save you. 
that he invites you to be saved and to know him better and to grow up in him. Teens, young adults, you face this same choice as you hear more and more the voices around you as you grow up, as you move towards independence. Do you believe that Jesus alone can save you from your sins? Will you walk away from him when you get the chance? When this body isn't there to prop you up, will your faith stand or will it fall? For us who are adults, here every week doing our religious rituals and habits, are we seeking the living Christ, knowing that we have no hope except for him? Are we hating our sin? Are we bringing it to Jesus? It's spelled out, he says it very clearly here. If you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. Jesus calls each of us to respond to what we've heard. He also calls us, those of us who do respond, who have said, yes, Lord, we believe. Then he calls us to share this message with others, right? For all of us as a church, as we believe, this then compels us love our neighbors who are dying in their sins. I mentioned the Mercy Ministries Conference. It was such an enormous encouragement to me to hear stories, story after story of people in churches like ours, of ordinary people who had been called in small and seemingly small ways to move out into their community with love, just to serve, whether that was caring for orphans, whether that was volunteering to be in a jail or prison or juvenile detention center, whether that was helping at a pregnancy clinic, whether that was helping teach ESL. There was a a myriad of different kinds of ministries that were described. And it was amazing to hear and encouraging to hear that those small steps of people moving out in love were being blessed by God and building up his kingdom, and bringing in those who were dying in their sins but found new life, and found the gift of faith, and learned who Jesus was, and that he is the I Am. Talk to us who went and join us in prayer as we look to the Lord to call us more deeply as a church, institutionally as well as individually, to move out into our community? What are the needs of our community? How can we serve our community with love and mercy as conduits of that love and mercy that God has given to us? Would you pray with us that God would expand our love, that God would multiply it out into our community, that he would use our church and each of us according to his purposes? Because it's a life or death message that we have. The second I am statement we read there is in verse 28. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. In the context of Jesus talking about how he's going away and how the disciples can't follow him, this verse is a clear description of where Jesus is going. He's going to the cross. 
The lifting up of the Son of Man has two senses. There's a sense in which he's being lifted up on the cross. There's a sense in which he's being lifted up to return to the Father, where he's going, ultimately. In chapter 12, Jesus says, When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. In chapter 3, Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. There is something again in this that is so counterintuitive and unbelievable. The cross will prove the identity of this divine Messiah. The execution of Christ, like a common criminal, will demonstrate his identity. The cross will prove that Jesus does nothing on his own, but speaks what the Father has taught. The cross proves that Jesus always does what pleases his Father, even though we know the irony, even in that line in verse 29, that Jesus says, God has never left me alone, but that he will, that God will leave him alone. That God will forsake his son. The cross proves the identity of this man that people will know. Not everyone, of course, but many even down to our day. They will know when the Son of Man is lifted up that he really is who he says he is. That the cross is, is powerful. It's a symbol and a reminder pointing to this event that, according to our narrative, is about to take place. The cross shows the way in which people will not die in their sins, but the way in which they can be saved. And throughout the centuries, of course, believers have used the cross. We put it on our churches. We put it on our Bibles. We put it all over the place as this symbol. We put it around our necks. We wear necklaces. We make it beautiful. It's the symbol of this reality to the watching world, of the lifting up of the Son of Man. One of my favorite statues in the world is found in Budapest, Hungary. There's a picture of it in my office. I apologize if some of you maybe have heard me talk about this before. Statues, of course, can be a powerful cultural communicator of what people believe, of what they value. The world watched, of course, in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down. Joyful people were tearing it down, and they were tearing down the statues dedicated to the Russians and the communists all across Eastern Europe. We watched it, of course, a few years later when the Iraqis were tearing down the statues of Saddam Hussein. It's this public act of saying, no, this isn't our leader. We're tearing down this statue. In Hungary, most of these statues sort of They didn't know what to do with them. They put them kind of out in this junkyard, and then some wise, um, creative person came up with this idea. Let's buy a piece of land out in the suburbs, and let's make a communist statue park. So it's this ironic kind of tourist attraction. You can pay 1,500 Hungarian forints. That's about six or seven dollars. You can wander around this park filled with these statues. These statues who used to be in all of the prominent places of the city. And you can mock them. You can pose there like Lenin. You can kind of sit by them. You can have your picture taken. It's this sort of mockery 
of this old failed system that they hated. I don't think many people go there to pay homage. There aren't pilgrims there, right, saying, oh, the good old days with Lenin and Stalin. No, no, no. There was a statue that wasn't touched during this upheaval. It was not a statue of a communist leader. It's the statue of a missionary. It was originally from Venice. He was on his way on a pilgrimage from Venice to Jerusalem. He met the king of Hungary, King Stephen, the first king of Hungary who had been uh, crowned, who had converted to Catholicism. He had been crowned by the Pope, baptized on Christmas Day, 1000 AD, at what is now an abbey in Tihon, which is a small village on the north shore of Lake Balaton. King Stephen was crowned by the Pope, was baptized again, as I mentioned. He was given authority. He was given the sign of a double cross that was that he would be the, the eastern bastion of Christianity, pre- preventing the, uh, the barbarians from coming in to civilized Europe. That was the idea, of course. A decade after Stephen died in 1038... There was an, uh, an uprising, a resurgence among the pagans who had probably never really converted to Christianity at all. So the people turned against the Christians. Many were martyred, including a man named Gellert, this missionary from Venice who had become a bishop of Hungary, as, according to, uh, as appointed by King Stephen. He was martyred in 1046. One of the legends... There are multiple accounts of the way he was killed. One of the legends is that he, they placed him in a barrel, a wooden barrel. They drove spikes into the barrel, and then they rolled him down this big hill that is on the western bank of the Danube as it passes through what's now Budapest. That hill today is called Gellert Hill. It's named after him. Built onto the side of that hill is a monument that includes a 40-foot statue of him. It's built in, it was built in 1904 standing over the city. What is St. Gellert doing, this Italian missionary, martyr? He's holding a cross. He's holding a cross high in his right hand. Directly in front of the statue of where he's standing there holding this cross is one of the major bridges that connects, that goes across the Danube, that connects the two sides of the city. All during the 20th century, when Hungary lost World War I, they were robbed of much of their land and their people, they lost World War II, the Russians invaded, installing this atheistic communist government and persecuting the church. All during those decades, Gellert was standing there, holding up the cross. And everyone driving across that bridge towards him sees him, he's standing right there, Every day as you're commuting back and forth, you see him. He's standing there holding the cross over the city. The cross is powerful. Jesus said when he's lifted up that he will know that he's the I am. The last verse of our passage concludes with this statement. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Many believed his words. Many were truly converted, but among this crowd were many who turned away, whose faith was shallow, that didn't endure. May it not be so for us. 
right? May we be the ones who are drawn to the cross and to the Savior who forgives our sins. He is the I am. He's the divine Messiah. He came to save his people, me and you. Amen. Please pray with me. God, we thank you that you are kind to us. Jesus, your obedience cost you everything. You became poor that we might become rich. And for that, we thank you this morning. You've extended grace and mercy to us beyond our imagining. We pray that you would help us to extend that grace and mercy to one another and to others outside of this building, that you would build your kingdom. Lord, help us to believe and to trust in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.